to Rules of the Frame. I'm your host, Connor Reed, and here's your other host, John Skinner. I, uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. That's definitely I'm, your I'm most convincing one yet. I'm, I'm recording outdoors because I'm afraid of, of houses now. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those of you listening in for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. We're still in the midst of our retelling or ripoff series where we've been taking a look at movies that have maybe borrowed or paid homage to previous films or ones that have directly stolen from them. And we're trying to figure out how do they relate to their previous inspirations and do they add something new to it or is it something that is just directly ripped from one thing to another? And this is definitely... An interesting one. Uh, we were talking how it doesn't quite fit the bill, but it's just such an interesting phase in Japanese film history and just film history in general that I felt like we had to cover it. So we are covering House in regards to Jaws. And we have a guest with us today. This is Travis. Is this your fourth episode that you've been on? I think it's the third. Okay. Yeah. Because I think Prometheus was the last one that you did with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Of course. I think this is the first one that we've done that hasn't been a sci-fi film because we first got you on with Metropolis. Yeah, yeah. Well, these last two are just movies where people get eaten. Honestly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing happens for the first half and then everyone dies. Yeah. This is also the second time in the series that the original film that we're talking about or the original film we've covered in a previous episode, too. Definitely make sure to check out our Jaws episode on that and also our Piranha 2. So not the only Jaws knockoff that we've covered as well, which is kind of weird. Well, I will start us off with a summary of the film. Gorgeous, a schoolgirl in Japan, plans on going on summer vacation with her father, but he calls it off due to his new wife. Gorgeous is upset and decides to reach out to her aunt and see if she and her six friends can come and stay. Her aunt agrees and the group of friends head out to the Japanese countryside. On the way, Gorgeous tells about her aunt's tragic love life and how her husband never returned from battle. At the house, they are greeted by her aunt, who tells them to get ready for dinner. One of the girls mysteriously disappears, and when another looks for her, she finds her disembodied head, which starts attacking her. The girls continue on with their evening practices, and one by one, they start meeting their fate in weird and absurd ways. One gets smothered by pillows, another is eaten by a piano, and Gorgeous gets possessed by the spirit of her aunt, acting out her vengeance on young women. One of the girls attacks the painting of the cat, and the house starts to split apart and fill with blood. All but two end up dying, and Gorgeous kills her new mother-in-law. So, my two words for this film are chaotic taboo. Taboo in a sense of, in, in multiple senses, because Nabuhiko Obayashi, the director of the film, talks about this, of how there was just a lot of subtle and not so subtle ways that this film kind of flipped off the Japanese filmmaking system. First off, by being called House because it was just not done where you would call a Japanese film by a non-Japanese word. 
other things too of just like how ridiculous it is and the fact that you look at other films of this era and it's like Akira Kurosawa is still making films and a lot of films are more like traditional kind of um, samurai films or romances and then this one is just totally off kilter much more in the line of like manga and kind of more poppy than most other films and being filmed and produced by Toho Studios which is like the Japanese film studio and has all of these classic films and prestigious films and then he uses them to make this crazy absurd movie and it's just weird it's wild doesn't really make a whole lot of sense what I've heard from other people that I completely agree with is that as a story it's nothing but as an experience it's fascinating my uh, two words are buck wild because it's buck wild <laughs> Like this movie, I've heard this. Yeah, the quote you're talking about, how it's it's not a good film, but it's heck of an experience. Like it is so insane, and it starts so crazy. And I actually really enjoy the first like third of this before it becomes a horror film. Like when they're just walking around, like it's just the amount of energy in the filmmaking is just bonkers, and it and it makes you it's hilarious. Like it's truly hilarious. And then the house happens and it gets crazier but it gets to this point where you can't even track what's going on it's weird because now horror comedy is very common and there's sort of an established expectation of how you're going to balance those two but this the horror is just like yeah let's cut their fingers off but be silly about it but also there's not a lot of horror in terms of like waiting for something to happen i mean i guess you technically know things are going to happen but even after the the first couple people die, it's still like, what's going on? You're so confused that you don't feel the horror as much. I didn't. I'm not a horror person, but I was not like scared by this at all. Like there was no tension or anything. It was just like, oh, this weird thing's happening now. Oh, there's blood. I'm sure back then it was stunning the contrast between those two, but now it's just like, okay, this is like an Adult Swim horror film. So it's Buckwild in the good way, and then it's Buckwild in the bad way. Where you, I feel like by the end, you completely lose track of what's even going on. And you're just like in it for the experience. And you kind of give up on it as a film, honestly. You just are like, this is crazy. I'm going to keep watching this. So I, overall, I, I did enjoy it. But man, it is just one of the more intensely confusing movies I've ever watched. Just like, what is this trying to be? What is going on? And uh the novelty of it is very enjoyable, but the uh, if we're actually talking about it as a film, it's like, I'm not sure what, what we were talking about. Like, what were mm. we going to talk about, right? Because by the end, I'm not even tracking what's going on. Right. Uh, my words are dreamy hunger. <laughs> um, this movie is just, I think this is the third time I've seen it. Every piece of this movie is so dreamy. Everything, except for the very beginning in the school, is shot on like sound stages with obvious painted backdrops and weird like keys that are pretty messy nowadays. And even the one scene where Gorgeous is at home, her conversation with her dad happens through like these weird windows that are like refracting the light. And everything is just so dreamy and doesn't really make sense. And then everyone just kind of slowly dies. <laughs> yeah. Except for her dad. Her dad's the only one who survives the movie. <laughs> Whenever I was writing the summary, I was like, 
to John what you were saying of just the chaos. I'm like, I can't even remember how this movie ends. Like, what happens in the last scene and all that? But yeah, it's it's a real trip. And before we get into our discussion, I'll give a brief now in film history. So the movie Jaws comes out in 1975 and really sets the stage for summer blockbusters. It's a huge hit. It makes a ton of money and thus starts the infamous subgenre of Jaws knockoffs where you get like Piranha, Piranha 2, all that sort of stuff. And Japan wanted in on that action. And so they said, we want to make our own horror film that is like Jaws. That's going to make us a ton of money. Nabuhiko Bayashi says that he can do the film and get some ideas from his daughter of like, okay, what is scary to you? And so she throws out all of these different things. And he's like, that's great. Sends them to one of his friends who then writes the script for it. And they're like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll make this. But then the film doesn't get made for two more years because no director wants to touch this movie. All of them would say, it would ruin my career. There's no way that this is going to work at all. And so Obayashi says, okay, well, I want to direct it. But Toho had um, a rule where you can't direct it unless if you're employed by Toho Studios. And so he wasn't. And so he then continues to make like commercials at Toho Studios and then actually turns house into a radio drama, a manga, all of these different multimedia things and puts them out. And it becomes such a huge hit that then the studio finally lets him direct the film. And so he hires on these seven girls who he met while shooting commercials and photo shoots and got them to play the seven girls and then brings on this much more prestigious actress to play the aunt in the film who uh, was a bit hesitant at first because in Japan at the time when if you were an actress and if you ever played anyone older then that was what you always had to play from then on out and so she was kind of a romantic lead but agreed to play an older woman in this because she thought it was such a wild and zany thing. And so the film, it, while being made, other people were like, this is a disgrace. There's no way that this movie should be made. It's going to ruin the name of Toho. And everyone just thought it was going to flop. And it didn't. It was actually a surprise hit. It didn't make anywhere near the amount that Jaws did. I actually can't find the overall gross of this film. But much to the dismay of even the people at Toho and the other directors, it became a bigger hit than most other movies and even surpassed the A movie that was playing before it in box office revenue and became a cult hit, but was really trashed by the critics, aside from a couple people who thought it was really wild and inventive. But then it just kind of lingered on throughout the culture, was finally released in America in about 2008 or 2006, I think, whenever Jonas Films released it in Criterion, put out the Criterion edition of it, and then it has become much more of a cult hit. And a lot of current day Japanese filmmakers cite this as one of their favorite movies slash one of their biggest inspirations. Um, you said it made more money than an A film? Yeah. How does that work? So there was a bigger budget, more prestige, romantic film, like traditionally romantic film that was like, I think it's called Hearts in the Mud. That, that played first, and then House was the B-movie that they were releasing as kind of like the more schlocky, like, yeah, we'll you know, maybe get some money from this. But Hearts in the Mud was kind of the big hitter that they knew they were going to bring in the cash flow with. Not like a double feature or anything, just they had two movies out at the same time. I think so, but I think they might have premiered okay. them as a double feature, too. Okay. But the crazy thing about this is if you have the Criterion Edition, there's like an interview with Obayashi and his daughter 
who came up with a lot of the deaths of the film. And she says that most adults hated it, but that its most popular audience were kids and that most of the films, the screenings would be filled with like people 15 and under, which I'm like, why would you let your kid watch this movie? Oh like, my gosh. Too much. It's, it's a lot. I mean, I think they like viewed it as like a kid's movie because it was so out there, but there's so much like violence and gore and nudity and all of that sort of stuff that I'm just like, why would you let your kid near that? And it's also surprising too, because Japan had like really strict filters on like what could be shown in films. And I'm surprised that they let this amount of nudity be shown in the film. It's just very strange. Yeah, it's definitely not a ripoff. Let's be honest. Let's yeah. get that away out of the way first. Like, this is not a ripoff of Jaws. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Jaws. In terms of similarities, I guess it's technically a slow burn, but it really doesn't do anything. Like, there's not anything in the first half that's like, oh man, the house is going to be dangerous. Like, there's not a lot of that at all. And even when they're dying, it's like you're not getting that sort of build of the threat. There's no sense of the house being an unseen threat until people just start dying. And and even then, it's it's still like, what's well, what's going to happen next? Instead of like, man, where is the shark? The paranoia. You don't really have the paranoia that you get from Jaws. There's not very few things about this that are very Jaws-like. He just uses an excuse to make a movie he clearly wanted to make, which is great. Totally. Instead of... It's buck wild. <laughs> Instead of paranoia, it's almost just like anticipation what is the next yeah. thing you're going to show us in like, not in a scary way, but I'm like, I'm looking forward to it. What's the next crazy thing? That's yeah, there's happen? like a grim curiosity. Honestly, like I had a hard time keeping track of who was dead anyway, because the first girl, okay, I guess dies and becomes a, a severed head. And then that's all crazy, right? It's like, oh, is she a ghost? Well, like, what is happening, right? What is she now? But then she never comes back. And... For a while, it's like, is is fantasy just seeing things or is this real? And then people start dying, but it's like, there's a couple of them where like gorgeous goes upstairs, turns into her mother or whatever. I think it's her aunt. Turns into her aunt and then goes outside, but then she's back inside. So like, there's a lot of like, where are even the characters? And it's, it's not clear. So there's a lot of like frantic searching, like, where is everyone? And then... It's more like, who's even alive? Like, I'm curious, like, who's alive still? Who's still dead? Like, what's going on, right? Yeah. Because it completely lost. Well, and I think they even play to that, too, where Melody kind of disappears for a while because they leave her alone in the piano room for a bit whenever Sweet gets, like, crushed by the mattresses. And so they go out looking for her. And then you see one of them come back out and they see an arm fall out. And you're like, oh, so I guess... Melody died, and then it's just her in the bathroom asking for toilet paper. They, I think they played too into the confusion of it. And yes. Yeah. That there's kind of, you know, a craftsmanship into like how maze like the whole house is. The way the house is structured, it doesn't make sense at all. Where which things lead out into the courtyard, which where the staircase is, where certain rooms are, just a lot of it is kind of like, I think, intentional nonsense. It almost seems like at random, they'd be like, oh, we need this death to happen. So we need to create this new room. And so it's kind of like a Seinfeld, yeah. the room sort of thing where it's like the set <laughs> doesn't really make any sense. I think they played to that in a way that it doesn't feel apparent or I guess at least detract from what's actually happening and kind of plays into how confusing it is. Yeah, like Sweet gets attacked by mattresses and then you maybe think, oh, she got turned into a doll because the doll is also naked. But then she's dead in the clock 
And it's like yeah. later. And so it's like uh, the house is doing things and then they die. But it's not clear. It's not like, oh, this is the music death. This is the bedroom death. Like there's, it's just the things happen to them. Then they're gone. And then sometimes you find them dead. Sometimes you see them die. Sometimes you don't. By the end, it's like, oh, you sort of get the like classic horror. Like we need to shoot it till it dies. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but that doesn't work. Then it fills with blood, but it's fine. The universe, it doesn't even attempt to have any sort of logic to what they're trying to do. I think it's implied that everyone eventually becomes watermelons. <laughs> like, seriously? Yeah, I, that's what I noticed this time watching it. Because the, the watermelon salesman, he's very like, oh, we haven't a guess Crazy. in so long. And then when the yeah. teacher shows up, he's like eating the watermelon. And he's like, mm. they're they're eaten and then he's like keeps eating it same with the ant she's eating a watermelon after mac oh, yeah. dies her eyeball i don't know yeah. it felt she like that's supposed to be mac that she's eating <laughs> yeah i definitely think so but then you actually see her eating her arm yeah later that's on. True. but then the watermelon salesman dies too like he just what does he turn into he just turns like, into poofs. banana no bananas no, is the professor oh you're right yeah oh that yeah <laughs> Oh, so first was just like, no, I want bananas, and the salesman dies. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so the was the professor was the person that she had a crush on? Wait, no, Fantasy. professor is one of the girls. Oh no, sorry, but, you're right. Oh, what professor, is like, you're saying you're right. The teacher <laughs> guy, Togo, that was or a teacher, something? right? Yeah. That, yeah. That was weird. Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah. Right. Like th- it's this guy that's supposed to be the hero, I guess, coming to sort of jokingly is very incompetent at coming to rescue them and uh but it's like well, he's old why is he doing this Th- maybe he's the the real person we should be afraid of not the house you know like what is going on here i honestly think he is just a scapegoat to have certain scenes because obayashi was talking about this like how they kind of lampoon a lot of like classic scenes in japanese cinema through a lot of his stuff like there's something where whenever he's like driving and there's like the huge truck behind him and then the truck driver starts yelling at him that that's like a famous Japanese actor. And then the scene inside the ramen house, there's also like another famous like Japanese actor and it's mimicking, I think even a scene from the hearts in the mud or whatever the A film was. And that there's like references to stuff like that going on throughout it. But I think that's mostly through his character. And so I think that's why he's in the movie. Other than that, he doesn't do anything at all. He's just stupid. And like the whole... (laughs) The thing at the beginning where you're just like, oh, oh, it's this kind of movie. Whenever the bucket like falls onto him and he starts like sliding around down the stairs and on the gravel. And he's just like, what <laughs> is happening? Yeah. That, that was the part where I texted you. I love this movie because <laughs> A, it's like, oh, this is the village. This is where they're going. Right. But it's just you kind of get the vibe of like, oh, small town. Like, oh, everyone knows each other. This is where they're going. But then it's like, no, he's trying to go with them, but he misses his train. Why is he taking the train with him? Oh, but he falls on a bucket. <laughs> and then, like, it's just so completely bonkers that I, I love that part because it's just totally out of left field and you're not expecting it at all. Yeah, it's really wild. And even the whole beginning stuff, when, when you're looking back at the movie, you're like, wait, why was that in it? Like, it doesn't really have any relevance to it. Like, it feels like it's setting up a movie. And you're like, okay, I know the stakes. And then as soon as they get off that train, like, none of that matters aside from the new stepmom that's the only thing and even that only comes up in the last like four minutes of the movie it's just really weird but it feels like 
the Japanese equivalent of a telenovela, just like with the sets of like the dreamy landscapes. And like you were saying, Travis, where it's just so fantastical and so out there. And even whenever they get to the watermelon stand outside of the house and you see that backdrop, it's still just like, oh, yeah, it's just fantastical film. And like Obayashi talks about him wanting this to be like a movie directed by a kid and like that. That's just kind of what the the mood and the tone was on set and that there was a lot of these like revered stoic crew members who have been working on movies their whole lives. And then at the end of this, they said, yeah, it's probably a terrible movie, but it reminded me how that the reason why I got into this business is because I love making movies and because it was so much fun. And so I think there's something to be appreciated on that front of it. But I think it just kind of goes to some extremes too that are just... Yeah, once it, once the house stuff happens, it's like, it's a similar logic to it where everything's crazy. But it, it kind of starts on the edge of complete chaos and then they then the horror actually starts and it completely falls apart almost right it's like yeah. this thrilling ride and then it just goes off off the rails because you're not able to even track what's going on anymore tell a novella it reminded me of the spoils of babylon yeah, <laughs> yeah. you ever seen that like that's what it reminded me of it's like a parody of telenovelas mm-hmm. so travis i'm interested then when was the first time that you watched this movie and what were kind of the circumstances surrounding it like did you pick it did someone else want to show you it how did that come about i kept seeing like references to it it's a movie that like once people have seen it you kind of like joke about it especially like on reddit and stuff Mm -hmm. i'd see things about it and i was like what is this movie and so i think it was probably like three years ago i was like all right let's watch it what is it (laughs) i was just at home watching it by myself (laughs) it I do wonder what it'd be like watching it in a theater. Oh. Like, well, now it'd be a crowd of people who know what to expect. <laughs> yeah. That would be pretty fun. Another thing about it, again, it really does kind of get less crazy. Like, visually, there's all this inventiveness at the beginning, and then you, and then the horror stuff happens, and it's just, it's still crazy, but it's it's less novel, you know? Like, it's it's like, okay, severed fingers are playing the piano. That's wild but that's not like i've never seen anything like that before right whereas i mean there's parts in the beginning where i can't even i didn't write everything down like there's just so many things in that first third first half that are just maybe it's references to stuff i don't know but i had never seen anything like that like there's having two camera shots of a person to simulate looking at someone and then switching your eyelids like that was a thing that happened for no reason like it had nothing to do with the story but it was just like yeah it was like a kid directing it the backgrounds obviously were crazy, but like so much of it was just, it was almost intoxicating how, how weird it was and how, how crazy and, and unprecedented in what I've seen it was. It felt like 30 years ahead of its time almost, right? Yeah. In terms of comedy. Well, and that's also one way that it kind of reminds me of Jaws too, because the first third is shot very like glossy, where all of the light is very angelic. It's almost like smudged. You know, the film stock that they use for Jaws, I'm not even sure what it was, but there's something to it where it, like re- the way it reacted with the light, it's a very like everything kind of has like a soft glow to it. It's not as like precise and pristine. But then I think once it actually gets into the house, it kind of turns into like, I don't know if they used a different film stock, if they lit it a different way, but there's something to it where the way that they shot it, you know, it feels more like Jaws in the first third than in the last bit. Yeah, I thought about like using surreal as one of the two words 
it is surreal, but doesn't feel like it's supposed to be. Like, it's not trying to, like, have a message <laughs> about anything. It's just uh, a crazy movie. It reminds me of, like, this trope in horror movies of, like, every character has a defining thing that kills them at the end. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't use something like Seven Deadly Sins or some sort of established set of things. It's just like, I don't know. She's pretty. She likes to play music. Uh, she's good at kung fu. <laughs> it's just roll doll characters. And then, like, what do their namesake is what will kill them. <laughs> and even still, like some of them aren't I mean, like that. Like, I feel like Melody and Mac are kind of the only two that are like that. Because then Sweet getting crushed by mattresses. Like, <laughs> it's, you know. Yeah, just I was like, thinking about that. I think, was she like tr- helping someone? Like, she was like, oh, I'll go get that for you. And she was cleaning, right? Oh. Sweet was before, cleaning. Yeah. yeah. There's no sense that they're dying because of something, but there's weird, ironic ways that they die. But it's hard. It like hurts your brain to try and build logic or some sort of worldview onto this movie because it doesn't have one. Yeah. I will say, I feel like I was more prepared this time. One, because I knew what was going to happen in some ways, because the first time I watched this was like late at night. And I think I was falling in and out of sleep. And so there were certain parts that I remembered very specifically, but most of it just kind of felt like a fever dream, which is, I feel like how it is, even if you watch it during the daytime. But there's just a lot that I'd forgotten about in this movie. But I honestly think one thing that helped me was like having seen other weird cinema especially like David Lynch. Like, I feel like there's a lot of parallels to like Lynch films in this and two scenes in particular where whenever Gorgeous is like staring into the mirror and like pieces of her are falling off and like the flames underneath. And then whenever like her aunt bursts into flames, I was like, that's like right out of like Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive or, you know, that sort of stuff where it's just so surreal in that sense. But then I feel like a lot of the other things are much more comical. But those two ones, I was like, those are the only parts that are like, not even scary, but just kind of like freaky in the sense of, you know, like what is happening and disturbing isn't is like too extreme of a word, but just in that weird kind of surreal. Sense. Unsettling. Yeah. Unsettling. Yeah. It's like Lynch meets Sam Raimi, which is a really it's just a weird mix <laughs> of tones. I think like the difference is that like David Lynch has a purpose for all yes. of the visuals. Everything he does has a meaning to him. Even if we're watching the movie, it's like, I don't understand. The way he makes his movies, everything has a meaning somewhere. And you can kind of feel it by the end. You're like, things connected. But this movie, it just feels like it's for fun. It's just... Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah. Well, and that was actually one of the big criticisms whenever this film was released to the American audience, where a lot of critics were like, yeah, it was fun and interesting. But honestly, Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi did it better. I think it's an interesting singularity in Japanese film history because there was much more of a control on what could be made because you had to be associated with like Toho Studios or like a more prestigious studio. And they really had their hand in a lot of stuff that was being made. Whereas, you know, Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson just kind of grabbed their cameras and shot stuff and like went overboard with it and then were able to find distribution and like showed it at film festivals and that whole sort of a thing. And I think they had more opportunity. And again, I think there is a bit more intentionality, maybe a bit less so with Peter Jackson than with Sam Raimi. But yeah, definitely thinking back to like brain dead and bad taste, 
meet the feeble is that sort of stuff where it is just kind of zaniness and goriness just for the sake of it. But I feel mm-hmm. like also those two are much more disturbing and actually effective in the horror sense, especially Sam Raimi. Yeah, like this house doesn't feel like it's trying to gross you out. It's hard to describe what it's trying to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's an experience. <laughs> well, and also kind of an undercurrent of some of the movies we've been talking about. I mean, I guess throughout this entire show is that film is this interesting artifice where it tries to lull you and draw you in and make you forget that like you're sitting in a theater, you're sitting in a, on your couch and like pull you into a movie and kind of keeps to the nature of like filmmaking laws. So that way you can be as like, involved as you can be where this film is just like constantly reminding you like hey this is a movie this is a movie this isn't real and like so much to the extent where there's like no putting yourself in the shoes of these characters there's no feeling like you're actually a part of this world because you're just like what is happening and because they break the fourth wall so much because they do these weird cutaways and key-ins and like all of these things that you're just constantly reminded like yes this is a movie you're not here for the story (laughs) you're here for the visuals having the girls comment on the montage yeah mind-bending and that's the same thing tarantino would totally do like like plenty of people now would do that but back then i just i was blown away how early this is and they're doing that like that's just a postmodern. like it's just crazy to think that he was doing that it's very yeah very like pointing out the artifice pointing out that it's not real by doing the weird mind-bending meta stuff. Yeah, like the the flashback to what her like mom growing up, and it's like, okay, yeah. this is a flashback. I I get what's going on, and then all the other girls start commentating mm-hmm. on it as if they're all watching yeah. a movie. But then it cuts back to them on a train as if she's telling a story. <laughs> yeah i think that part's really interesting too because i think that was one of the parts that i had completely forgotten about but there have been some readings of this as that kind of being the underpinning of like thematic elements in it because obayashi came from hiroshima and said that like all of his friends growing up were killed by the bombings there and that there is kind of that like underpinning sadness that is kind of explored through the aunt of being the only one to survive even whenever they take the photo you see the nukes going off and like the girls being like, oh, it looks like cotton candy, you know, like that whole sort of thing. Yeah, they're totally not understanding. Yeah, the innocence away from it. And so that there's like this anger towards that innocence and that that's kind of some of what's playing into like the killing and being the only one left and left alone. But again, I think that's also like a pretty deep reading of it too. Like unless if you're paying attention to it, it doesn't make itself completely apparent that that's what's going on. Yeah, it's weird because then... Gorgeous becomes her aunt by the end, or her aunt possesses her and takes her body on, but then she kills her mother-in-law, mm-hmm. her stepmom. Yeah. Well, why did she do that? The that was unexpecting that actually. Because the the aunt, because her fiance died mm-hmm. in the war, she kills all unmarried women who yep. come to her house. Oh, she's not married yet. For some reason, I thought she had already gotten married. No, she's she was jealous of her sister uh, who was able to mm-hmm. get married. Totally makes sense now. I was like, oh, she's married, so she's immune to this, but she Mm -hmm. wasn't. No, she's not. Yeah, because there are almost some points, John, like you were saying, where it kind of grinds to a halt in the silliness to try to throw in some exposition. And I feel like the whole transformation of Gorgeous is one of those moments later on where that happens, because then you hear 
some dialogue from the aunt about the heartbreak, about like what's going on. But then it just cuts to the house splitting apart and filling up with blood and a picture that's like the shark that, you know, in the water and all that sort of stuff. And it's just it is kind of weird. And then, yeah, you get the cutaway to her, you know, soon to be new stepmom just randomly showing up. And it's like, you know, everything's going back to be picturesque and quaint and all that. And it's such a long sequence. Like, I was just like, when is it going to happen? Yeah, that she's going to die or leave or whatever because yeah it's just wild and the guy turns into bananas right yeah man what's that there's just like stuff like that where it's like what all right i'm rolling with it i can't you know you forget it because it's just so weird you don't have time to mm-hmm. absorb how weird it is and he turns into bananas i will not let this movie ruin watermelons for me either <laughs> it made me hungry for watermelons don't judge me <laughs> it's hot I've never liked watermelon, so it didn't really affect me. Man, you bad taste. <laughs> <Jeez>. um, <laughs> I mean, this whole movie is so weird, but I do love that random montage where the theme music starts playing over and it's doing like all the rewinding of footage of like the cat singing along to the song and jumping on the piano and all that. It's just like yeah, so weird. weird. <laughs> yeah. Like like needle scratching, but for movies, like it's yeah, it's so strange. And they really milk like those three themes. The soundtrack has like 20 songs on it, but it really sounds like they just use the main theme, the whatever Kung Fu's theme is and the sad theme, too. And over and over and over again. And then there's some pops pop songs. In yeah, there too, or pop sounding. songs. Right. Because yeah. that was one of the other promotional things they did for this was they the band is called Go Die Go. And they were like pretty popular around the times. And so they had them make the soundtrack before the movie came out and then released it as like a vinyl recording. And it became a huge hit as well. And so throughout filming, they would play the soundtrack on set. And Obayashi says that whenever he would try to direct the girls, they were just terrible because they weren't actors. Like they didn't have any formal training or anything like that, that they just could not figure out like what he was trying to say. But then he would play the music and then they would just know what to do. So it's weird. (laughs) <laughs> like dance or act too like i don't what does that mean yeah i think act too i mean he just says like i would try to give them the directions and they wouldn't understand but then i'd tell them what the scene was and play music and then they would just understand what to do oh, okay a lot of people do that and that was like you know one thing that peter weir famously does too is he's always playing music on set to try to get people in the mood and all that and that's like a big thing he used on like master and commander to try to get people ready for what they were filming and being in that naval life at that period of time. If it works, it works. Travis, I also want to get your opinion on the visual effects in this movie. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. They're perfect. They're great. <laughs> yeah. I think they're exactly what the movie needed. <laughs> when you think about it, because looking at it now, you, you're like, oh, that's so like primitive and stupid looking and all that which is intentionally done like he wanted to make it look like poorly done because he said they had access to like the people that did godzilla and like all these other like really famous special effects but he's like no we just wanted to do them ourselves because we wanted them to look fake there was one like little shot at the end when everything starts to like the house is like falling apart and there's (laughs) some of the like overlays it might have been like a mouth or like something else sort of like keyed out but like overlaid on the screen but then there's also just a bunch of practical like things falling and like moving around it was like oh so they planned to have all of this together 
because they went through a lot of work to string up all these pieces of the house that are falling and then moving around them in the room. And the whole like piano death <laughs> is it's so much fun. <laughs> Slowly getting eaten by the piano and putting different I don't know, she must have like blue gloves on. It's like, oh, my hands cut off. And then it just slowly more and more of her. There's just like a quick shot of the piano, like coming all the way out and like grabbing her yeah. and pulling her in. Which I think they did stop motion for that because I don't know how else they would have done that. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that they were like the first Japanese film to use like video effects. And so they did like a lot of chroma keying oh. out. And one that I thought was really interesting, whichever one it is that dissolves in the water, prof, when she dissolves in the water, that what they did was they had her like on wires and then they poured blue paint over her. So it would like key parts of her out to make it look like she was dissolving. Oh, cool. And then there's other ones where you just like see like the wires holding up different things and all that. It's just, <laughs> gosh, it's wild. But I mean, honestly, some really interesting and inventive imagery, like whenever the uh, mirror is shattering and starts bleeding. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. When the mirror shatters, that's a shot. I was like, how did they do this? Mm -hmm. Like, did they actually shatter a mirror and like control it? Because that did not look like all the other visual effects. No. Compared to the other keying stuff they did, it looked practical. That was a pretty cool shot. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it does go back and forth where there are some effects where it's so meticulously done and looks really good and really inventive and then just like super schlocky. Like it's obvious like what they're doing. And and honestly, like even though it's a mess, I think this is actually a pretty well edited film to be able to cut around all of the technical limitations that they had to do some of these things. Like I'm especially thinking of Kung Fu's fight with the lamp. That is just so all over the place. <laughs> but honestly, really interesting the way that they use like puppetry for the lamp itself. And it's just really fascinating how they use editing to cut around the limitations of the time while still making everything look limited. Like, I don't know. It's just mm. weird, but it's it's pretty fascinating. I think it, it feels very purposeful. Like they're like, we want to cut this. And all of Kung Fu's fights Every time she's like, all right, I'm going to use martial arts. It's all like cut in the same, like super fast. Like you don't really see what's happening. And then she's like done. And whatever it is, like falls so, over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Even that. like the covered door. Yep. She's like, I got this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That one's so great. I think this is something that's so fascinating about everything pre-digital where you're watching these sorts of movies and even like, you know, the old Ray Harryhausen films. And even though it looks incredibly dated nowadays, thinking back to it, it's so fascinating and so meticulous. And there's so many tiny things that are going into it that it really adds on this value and appreciation for the film that I feel like we just don't get as much with having computer generated effects. And sometimes there is, you know, really interesting and really fascinating stuff that we do with them. But most of the time, like anytime there's news about the effects in a movie, it's usually about like, oh, yeah, we're going back to practical effects. And this is what we're doing for practical effects. And that there's something that's like magical about it. And like, this is probably trite. But honestly, this kind of reminds me of like, you know, Georges Méliès' early films where it's something so obviously using the artifice of editing and film 
to create these effects that are not realistic, but like fantastical in a way. And that it adds this interesting and kind of definitely magical for Melies. I don't know as much for Obayashi's film, but it's something so fascinating. And it really is, you know, like if you showed, it's a little magical. If, if you showed this film to someone in the 1800s, it'd kill them. <laughs> There's just so much like wild stuff happening that's so imaginative. <laughs> they would have a heart attack and die. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's very transparent what they're doing. But it's still like the suspension of disbelief is easy and you buy into it, Mm -hmm. even with seeing. I mean, it's so crazy, so, so quick that you're just like, all right, this is happening. Like we're saying a lot of positive things because there's a lot to say that's positive about the visual effects. But I will say filmmaking overall in terms of the story is pretty bad. Like, like it is. And we can say, oh, they're trying to do this, but you lose complete track of what's even going on at the end. So I do think that there's negatives to all this chaos, right? But that's the type of thing that's forgivable, right? Because the visuals are so good that it's just like worth looking at just as a historical placeholder, like or like a like a point in time to sort of see like it feels like a movie much farther in the future, which is always a good good sign for how visionary it was. But it's not perfect. <laughs> It's not a great film. It's a great experience. That's a good way of saying it. Mm. I think it's also then an interesting comparison, too, to Jaws, where a lot of things that we talk about with Jaws is, I mean, that is much more story-based, but of how much, how many limitations they had, the obstacles they had to overcome with having effects that wouldn't work out right and being able to use them. And I think, you know, Spielberg uses them more artfully and more masterfully and has like more of a plan for it. In, in the greater story sense and tone sense. And I think Obayashi was like, let's just have fun with this, which is, you know, something I really appreciate. But yeah, overall, I think there's not like the intense craft in the story sense, but the intense craft more in the experience sense, which is, you know, something we need as well. Yeah, Jazz deals with its limitations with restraint. As this is the opposite. This is like pour all the colors in, use every color I have to do everything go all in, put everything up to 11, and it works. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the effects hurt the... Pro- like, are, they're not a problem. They're not part of the issue with the story. That's just... He was more creative with, with the visuals than he was able to be creative with the story, yeah. I think. So we have been a bit positive. So, Travis, I want to know, what are some of your critiques of this film, then? I mean, I just gave it... I gave it, like, 9 out of 10 on Letterbox <laughs> just now. So... I don't know. It's a little slow at the beginning or end, but I really just I really enjoy this movie a lot. John. Weird nudity. Hate the nudity. Unnecessary. I hate the nudity. Yeah, hate the nudity. Yeah. It's just I totally weird. forgot about that part. And I was like, Same. Wait, what? This yeah. <laughs> Yep, I totally forgot that any of that was in there. It's not fast either. They're just like, all right, now there's gonna be nudity for a while. And it's like, why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it takes a long time for some of them. Like, all right, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Like, it's very uncomfortable and very odd. It doesn't seem to be meant to create that reaction, though. So it sort of feels like unnecessary. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, that's the yeah. thing is, like, I really don't understand what it's meant for. And, like, maybe it's just, you know, a cultural thing that I'm missing. But, yeah, I just don't get it. Yeah, I'm curious to see what the reaction was to that specifically in the culture. Because my guess, like you said, would be that it was very, since, you know, they do a lot of censoring. But 
it's different than the type of censoring that happens here mm-hmm. or happened here. So curious what the reaction was to people liking it, right? Yeah. Like how did, did people think it was an outrage that people were liking this movie or is it just like whatever, who cares, you know, just schlock? Yeah, well, it seems like back then, like most people were just thrown off because of the silliness and the inexplainable parts of it. That's the main criticism that was brought up against it. I don't think there's anything against like the nudity or blood and gore and that whole sort of a thing. I don't know. Like it's weird because it's so centerfold, but it's also just like not the point in a way. Like I I really don't. I mean, there's so much of this that I'm like, I don't know why he did this, but he did. How similar was the manga that came out, you said? Was it like he already knew what he was going to do and he just did a manga of the movie or? Um... I'm not entirely certain. I know that the radio version differed heavily from it and like had kind of a different story. I mean, it was still about like a house eating people, but I don't know. It'd it'd be really interesting to read the manga and it's just kind of weird. I mean, the whole thing is just weird. It's kind of a movie that makes you a little speechless, frankly. Yeah. I'm like like 50-50 on like, should I say, hey, if you heard everything we say and you're intrigued, maybe watch it. But it's also like... It's weird. It's a hard movie to recommend. If there wasn't the nudity in it, I would probably recommend it more. But since there is, I feel like if you recommend it and then people watch it, they're like, why did you make me watch that? Yeah, it's like someone else can recommend it to them. I'm not going to. (laughs) I'm still still processing it, frankly. It's It's not so innovative. It's not so off the wall that it's like becomes a complete masterpiece to me. But it's very interesting. It's one of a kind. About mm-hmm. One of a kind, yeah. Yeah, which even Obayashi was thinking about making a sequel later on, but then he was like, no, a movie like that should be like a one and done, once in a lifetime thing. House 2. Yeah. <laughs> House 2. Also, Pure Hearts and Mud is the name of the, the A-list film that Toho put out that year. Pure Hearts. I'm trying to tell a joke, but I haven't written it. <laughs> All right, really well, I'm, I'm skipping then. So, I mean, we've already said this. But retelling or ripoff? Retelling. So yeah. so obviously, yeah, mm-hmm. it's transformative to the point of it shouldn't be on this list, frankly. Travis? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with retelling. But I'm glad you had it on the list so that we yeah. can talk about it. <laughs> right. I mean, like, I'd much rather talk about this than have to. Since we've also already done a Piranha 2 episode, I feel like we've kind of thrown out our stuff on there of like what a Jaws remake or a Jaws ripoff is like. So, I mean, this is much more interesting than Piranha and much more interesting retelling than a lot of the other films I feel like we've covered in the series because it is so out there. And it's literally just off the germ of something. It's not even using really story elements. It's like, okay, it's a horror movie about something eating people. And that's it. Like, those are kind of the, the main comparisons. That's it. Trivia challenge for this is going to be a little interesting. So we have two questions and two challenges. Question number one, which of these deaths was not inspired by Obayashi's daughter? A, being eaten by a piano. B, being crushed by a mattress. C, being electrocuted by a lamp. Or D, a watermelon turning into a disembodied head. I'm going to go with the lamp. Yeah, me too. That is correct. Yep. All of the other ones she had talked to her dad. I love Lamp. She had talked to her dad about and also having like your reflection in your mirror attack you. So that was kind of another thing. But I don't I don't know if Gorgeous died from that or if she just 
transfigured. It didn't really, yeah, it was not clear what was happening to Georgia Gorgeous from the entire movie. Yeah, but yeah. All right. Question number two. Which series did Obayashi pitch for him to direct as the next installment of after making this film? A, Lone Wolf and Cub. B, Godzilla. C, Lupin the Third. Or D, Gamera or Gamera. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, I'll guess that too. <laughs> no, I'm going to loop in the third. Yeah. Nice. Both are incorrect. It is actually it. Godzilla. Oh. And I just have to read this out because this is crazy. So it would have been the 16th Godzilla movie. His pitch was a uh, story is told of a little girl named Momo who discovers the dead body of Godzilla. After being dissected, Godzilla is revealed to be a pregnant female alien named Roseanne who died of diabetes. The, de- the brain of the dead Roseanne instructs the humans that she must return with her unborn son to the planet of Godzilla, and so her body is converted into a spaceship. The newborn child would be re- reunited with its father, and they would have fought a female monster that shot fire from her breasts. Ultimately, this project was discarded by Toho and was instead released as a short story in the Japanese edition of Starlog magazine. That's many things. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like he's consistent, at least. I know, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen any of his other movies, but apparently he's had a pretty prolific career. So I'd definitely be interested in seeing like what his other movies are like. But he's not the sort of person Certainly that Certainly gonna... not running out of ideas. Right. I think I saw something. He just released a movie in the last like couple of years. Yeah, 2019, I think. Yeah, Labyrinth of Cinema is what it's called. All right. First challenge. And this is an easy one just because I couldn't find a, a third question to do. This film was brought to the U.S. by, I mean, essentially the Criterion Collection by making it available on DVD and that whole sort of a thing. Can you list seven other films released by Criterion that are horror films? And this one's a bit more for Travis because I know he knows a bit more about Criterion. Does Rosemary's Baby count as a horror film? Yes. The Exorcist. No. Uh, There's a couple other Japanese ones, too. Vampire? I'd count that, yeah. Or Haksan? I'd count both of those, yeah. This is an unfair challenge. <laughs> You're just stunting on me. John, there should be a couple that you'd be able to get. There's, yeah, there's a lot of them <laughs> that aren't specifically horror that I would kind of put in that. Like Ugetsu or Kuroneko count as horror movies? Oh man, I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about Ugetsu. They're That's a tricky I mean, because I guess technically. <laughs> But it's not like a horror movie. That's oh. no. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Uh, I'll see Frankenstein. Um, no, actually, surprisingly not. That would be great though. I'd love a fr- uh, Criterion release of Frankenstein. There are a couple by a director that we've talked about on this episode. Eraserhead. Yeah, a classic zombie movie. Uh, Day of the Dead. Mm, Night no, of the Living Dead. Yes. All right, you just need two more. Cronenberg films. <laughs> well, that makes it too easy. Yeah. Oh, the I'd fly. give you Cornecco, actually. So okay. you only need one more. Uh, the Fly the is Videodrome? Not. Yes, Videodrome. <laughs> so yeah, some of the other ones I was looking at was The Blob, The Brood by Cronenberg, stuff like Carnival of Souls, Kronos, so like the early Del Toro films. Oh, that. Kronos and oh. Devil's Backbone and yeah. Pan's Labyrinth. All right, so now here's your other challenge. Can you list the seven main characters of this film and their deaths? Gorgeous gets turned into her aunt. 
mm-hmm. sort of. Mac gets turned into a watermelon. Mm-hmm. Or a watermelon gets turned into Mac. It's not clear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Vice versa. Sweet gets assaulted by mattresses, but then I think stuffed in a clock and dies. Yep. Not clear what happens there either. Kung Fu gets, I don't remember, what, uh, electrocuted by a lamp. Yep. Prof gets killed by the shark accessories in the water. Slash. The blood water. And, and what? And. And then like di- dissolved. Yep. Dies in the water. Yep. Fantasy? I forgot what happened to Fantasy. What happens to Fantasy? Fantasy I think she is lives. just killed by, uh, she's just killed by um, Gorgeous. But does she kill her though? They just they're just seen sitting on the steps and that's it. Because I think that's like fantasy's thing is she has a fantasy and so she believes that she's there to save her. Mm. But when the stepmother to be arrives, no one else is there. Mm. Melody's eaten by the piano. Yep. Yeah. And that's it. A weird, creepy um teacher guy gets turned into bananas. Yep. Weird watermelon salesman disappears yeah i really can't does he turn into a skeleton or something because something like the cat explodes because they shot the painting yeah and then it vomits blood is that all the deaths oh mother-in-law gets burst into flames incinerated (laughs) yeah burst into flames i mean that's really about it aunt's fiance gets nuked that's that's all the deaths i could think of oh there is the there is the part whenever Gorgeous is in the kimono as her aunt, and then like the blood starts pouring out of her. That's like kind of the only part in it that is just like, oh wow. Like I feel like that's the most graphic part. Cause a lot of the other things are just more comical. But that's really the one where it's like, I feel like they use like a more realistic looking blood for that and the way it just kind of like pours off of her shoulder. I think that's all we got for those ones. Uh Travis, thank you so much for being on this episode. It was great having you on again. Yeah, thank you for having me back. This is really fun. We'll definitely have to make sure the next one is either a weird movie or a sci-fi. I hope it's weird. Everyone has to get eaten. That's the, that's the <laughs> requirement. Ask me. Ask me what we're doing. All right, and I'll John, sound like I know what I'm talking about for, for once. And John, do you want to say what the next film that we're going to be covering is? Or films? Fistful of Dollars and Yojimbo. That's going to be a fun one. Which is like one of the most blatant ripoffs. I mean, just spoiler <laughs> alert. Like. The spoiler is, is do we love it so much that we give it a pass? Right. Right. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Tune in next time. <laughs> well, I think that wraps us up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. We are at Rules of the Frame. That's a good place where you can send us your comments or questions. We also like to post trivia for the films that we're covering the week before. So if you want some fun trivia or facts about the movie, that's a good place to see that. And again, if you want to send us your request for maybe a film or a topic or something like that, who knows, we might end up covering it. And we'd also love it if you gave us a review on iTunes. That really helps to make our show more visible. And now you can actually give ratings on Spotify. If you're on the app on your mobile device, you can scroll up to the top of it. There's a little star right there, and that's the place where you can do it. It's super quick. It's super helpful. And we'd love it if you did that. Or if you just want to share this with your family and friends, we really appreciate that as well. Got to say thanks to John for the use of the graphic and to Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and the outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. (laughs) 